Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, I'm joined by our friends in PwC's financial markets practice. Our focus is on what's happening in the markets and how COVID-19 is impacting valuations. This episode will also have a companion episode dedicated to taking a deeper dive into some of these topics. So keep an eye out for that one coming soon. For today, joining me remotely from across the country are Chris Merchant and Chris Bailey, both from our financial markets practice. There's a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Chris Merchant and Chris Bailey, thank you guys both so much for joining me today. First time having two guests with the same name, so we'll see how that goes, especially over the phone. Today's conversation, I'm really looking forward to, we're going to be talking about different valuation challenges in the current environment. We're headed towards the end of April. We're on April 22nd, and they're going to give us some thoughts about valuations in a few specific markets. And then we're going to wrap things up today focused on different things to think about from a governance perspective, which I think particularly for our controllers in the audience, knowing the right questions to ask will be very helpful. So with that tee up, Chris Bailey, I'm going to go to you first uh, to talk about the real estate market. And maybe if you can give us a few of the trends that you're seeing, and then we'll kind of hone in on a few areas and what people should think about from a model perspective. But I'll turn it over to you. So really, real estate as an asset class is, has been disrupted significantly, um, call it since the middle of March. And as we all know, very unexpectedly, I think the two thematic areas that we're seeing the disruption is one in the property fundamentals. Um, that certainly has a carryover into the real estate credit markets as well, but really the property fundamentals, meaning the cash flows. And, and those cash flows, as we all know, are, are derived from rents that are paid by tenants, corporate tenants, consumer tenants, et cetera. And so, as, as again, we all see in the headlines every day that that's, that's a struggling part of the marketplace. The second area is around transactions and capital markets, which I know we'll get into. But really focusing on the, the property cash flows, the property fundamentals, it's really disrupted across multiple fronts or in multiple facets. Everything from requests from rent relief from a variety of different tenants, both commercial and consumer, impact of government public protection measures, shelter in, in place, social distancing, leasing and construction delays. I mean, really, there's operational disruptions that impact cash flows. You, you know, a lot of states, I'm in Boston, um, have shut down construction. You, you literally can't go out and build your building unless it's essential, like a healthcare type asset. Lower rent growths are expected, higher higher expected costs to obtain a tenant in the future, meaning you're going to have to incentivize the tenant to come to your building because they're going to have those that are still viable and solvent are going to have their pick. Things like tenant improvement packages to have somebody build out their space, those are going to become more expensive. Um, but really, the main theme on the cash flow side is tenant credit quality. So back to rent relief, what we're hearing from our tenants and we're actually helping our tenants through is a, an unprecedented wave of rent relief requests. And those come in the form of tenant reach outs, asking for abatements, deferrals, extended payback periods, interest-free loans. As they're accessing the, the various features of the CARES Act, they're also needing shorter term relief, uh, primarily to maintain liquidity, to pay those, those employees that haven't been furloughed. And, and they're really trying to access um, everything they can to do that. And so what that means is that, you know, when you're underwriting your cash flows for the purposes of valuation, you need to account for things like delays. Um, we're not going to be getting rents paid for the next three, six months. And then once it's delayed, when are we going to be getting paid back? Is this something that I expect to amortize over 
2021? Is it an extension to the end of my lease? And so the view in a, in a positive market is you can make some broad strokes assumptions across performance of tenants. And there's really not really as specific tenant credit underwriting that happens. In this market, we're seeing our clients really dig in and, and say that I have a double A investment grade quality tenant, and then I also have mom and pop. And we need to make sure that we can treat those appropriately for the purposes of, of cash flow forecasting. And so that property fundamentals or just fundamentals generally are a key focus of our clients right now. Hey, Chris, I know one of the things that we've been discussing a lot amongst our team is kind of what comes first in terms of cap rates, in terms of discount rates, in terms of fundamentals. Could you maybe like how are people thinking about the, you know, the, the order of operations there in terms of what's happening in the real estate market? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and one a lot of our clients are really focused on. So at the end of the day, you're trying to calibrate your risk in, in for the purposes of valuation and what is a target return that, a, that an investor would expect, you know, just the whole concept of an exit price. And because the transaction market in, in the capital markets are by a large part frozen, we're seeing most of our clients really sharpen their pencils around the cash flow. Um, how can I calibrate that uncertainty and solve for that uncertainty with my cash flows by delaying, increasing credit loss, increasing vacancy expectations, understanding there's going to need to be some capital investment at some point in the future when we're able to do that. And so the primary focus has been that cash flow, or if you th- think about a waterfall, it's cash flow first. And then where we can't solve for that uncertainty it's a calibration of a discount rate, which is certainly another measure of uncertainty or required return. The cap rate side, we're not seeing a lot of calibration there. I think, Chris, as you're familiar with in the private equity space and a discounted cash flow, your exit might be five, 10 years from now. And I think everybody's um, crystal ball is telling them that, that this uncertainty is going to be past us five to 10 years down the road. And so terminal cap rates, as they're referred to in the real estate space, have not been really calibrated other than discretionary retail. Um, so think about all the malls that none of us go to right now, as well as hospitality assets, which, which are now experiencing you know, average occupancies in the 5 to 10%. So those areas, we're seeing some more risk accountability in the, in the discount rates. But office, retail that's grocery anchored, student housing, multifamily, th- those assets, we're not really seeing the same level of, of calibration on, on risk in the discount rate. And then Chris, with all of this uncertainty that you're talking about, are you seeing a big impact then on deals? Huge, um, huge impact on deals. I think the main thing that we're seeing for deals right now is that the transactions that are closing are primarily transactions that have been negotiated pre-COVID-19. Um, you had strong sponsors that more, wanted to make a strategic investment they're holding to that, they're holding to their commitment. But realistically, they put hard money down and a significant material deposit, you know, they're weighing, leaving that behind. And so in lieu of the deal failing, or everybody walking away, we're seeing a lot of deals stall. Um, Everybody's waiting to see is if this is a three month disruption, can we can we get this kickstarted again? There is a wider bid ask spread, though, on those deals right now. And, And part of the stall is can we coalesce around a new price that that everybody believes is reflective of, of a good fair value. In addition to that, you know, we also all have to think about the capital markets and, and specifically the debt capital markets. And so those are also disrupted as well as as, as banks and non-banks alike have to think about, you know, their fiduciary responsibilities for their investors. And is it prudent to be putting capital into this into this market? And so deals are also being stalled and, and, and sometimes 
being canceled or, or walked away from because the debt financing has, has dried up as well. I guess one thing I'd be remiss in not mentioning is that obviously all these different rent abatements that you're talking about do have accounting implications as well for both lessors and lessees. And that was taken up by the FASB. And we did release a podcast on that last week, just talking about some of the accounting implications. So definitely in addition to valuation, people need to think about accounting. Maybe then with that lead in, Chris Merchant, I'll turn to you and see what similarities and differences you're seeing in valuation challenges in the private equity markets. Sure. So let's let's start with the similarities. Um, I guess first off is timelines. You know, we're clearly seeing and expecting the timelines are going to lengthen. It's taking longer to get deals done. A lot of the marketing has stopped, right? It's, it's hard to go out and meet management of a company when you're not allowed out of the house. So, so naturally, this slowdown and this, this social distancing is having an impact on timing. You know, one of the key inputs to the valuation process for, for these private companies or investments in private companies is an assumption around the exit. Is it an IPO? Is it a sale? Is it a merger and acquisition? And obviously, longer timelines can have an impact on the valuation. It can have an impact on a number of other assumptions. And so we're seeing those timelines extend just because of what's happening in the market. Another key point is just the lack of transactions. And while that's always a challenge in the public and private markets, not dissimilar from real estate, uh, obviously, there's fewer transactions. And one of the key inputs to the valuation process when we're looking at private equity investments is really public company information. So, so many people start with, what are my public indices doing? Are they up? Are they down? What's the sector doing? Uh, they might look at you know, debt or equity indices. And, and obviously, we all know what's happened there. And we've seen what's happened with the S&P and, and other indices over the past several weeks and months. So naturally, there's this transition, which is how do you bridge the gap between the information that's available in the public markets for these companies? And then how does that manifest itself in valuation in private companies? That's always been a challenge. It's just now there's a lot more uncertainty. And so that judgment's probably e- even more challenging because there's less transactional data in the private markets right now for which you can calibrate. You know, Heather, I think you touched on an important point around some of the accounting considerations. And I guess that's that's another key theme that we're hearing. Um, in order to, to, to assess your investment in a private company, you'll need to understand their financials. And you know, we're seeing a delay in timing in terms of even something as simple as how quickly can they get their financials out to what's the fundamental impact on the business? And uh, not only the fundamental impact from, say, a disruption in the economy, you know, maybe somebody that's in the hospitality business or has touching retail or touching uh, you know, restaurants, um, obviously, they're going to be directly impacted. But we know that there's a bunch of guidance that's come out from the FASB and from other regulators that's actually impacting how you report your financial data. And so I think one of the challenges that um, investors are going in, in private equity are going to have to work through is how quickly do they get the information? What's changed, whether that's because of the fundamental business or because of the reporting framework, because of some, you know, some new rule, and then how does that ultimately roll up into their their longer term view of valuation of that company? Chris, on that point, I think one of the things that we're seeing and what we're discussing when we look back to, to prior disruptions is that our clients are are feeling that this is this is a multi quarter effort. This isn't one where three thirty one showed up. We were two weeks into the significant market disruption, when you look at historical disruptions, whether it's the, the financial crisis of you know, 2008 to 2010, the markets in the private space, you know, private equity, private credit, and real estate take multi-quarters for, for the valuations to really start to be calibrated. You see the cash flows um, kind of first 
you, you tend to see discount rates calibrated thereafter. And then when and if transaction markets start to unfreeze, then you have some good market comps and some data points to be able to employ a, a more appropriate market approach. And so I, I think all of us expect for this to be kind of a prolonged discovery process as it relates to not only our, our clients' uh, health in their their financial health of their portfolio, um, but as well as kind of how how investor sentiment you know comes into play and, and what investor returns are going to be, and, and and that's certainly the input that that drives things like cap rates and multiples and discount rates. And, and until those folks are comfortable enough to jump back into the market, we're just going to have a a period of of calibration and, and, and uncertainty in some of the valuations. But I also don't think that that avails anybody from using the information that they do have available to them. And, and I think that's one area where we're also seeing some trends is that uh, valuation experts are putting a lot of caveats in reports. And, and specific mm-hmm. to real estate, the Appraisal Institute has is, is kind of come out and said, hey, guys, it's our community to be providing trustworthy valuations into the market. And it's, it's not appropriate to put too many caveats or make extraordinary assumptions. You know, we need, we need to all collectively use the information that we have in these dysfunctional markets. And, and while it may not be as orderly as it once was, I mean, the, the accounting guidance, as all of us know, have a pretty high bar to define a market is, is entirely disorderly to throw out all the information that we do have. We, we do have some. It's not perfect, but it's, it's enough to get to, to a good answer. You know, the number one theme that, that certainly we've heard, at least in the PE space, is following the process they had before. Right? Disruption is not always the, the right time to start fundamentally changing what you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, but rather... What was the policy? What was the procedure? What was the methodology? Go through your approach. And then obviously that warrants probably additional uh, scrutiny, additional oversight, additional involvement from leadership. So follow the process that, that's held, held up before because that's what you, you believed in. Um, and that's what you've told your investors and other stakeholders you're going to do. But then put the appropriate level of, of review and oversight on the output given the uncertainty. Is that is that consistent with what you're hearing in the real estate space or what, what's happening there? Yeah, uh, this isn't the time to throw the policies and procedures out the window. If anything, it's it's the time to hold uh, hold those tightest because from a governance standpoint, investors and regulators and, and all of us auditors, we all need to make sure that what's being done and the values that change aren't because of a new model. It's because of calibration to the market and introduction of an alternative valuation methodology um, may disrupt valuation. That being said, I think going back to the, the lack of transactions in the market, which are the primary drivers for inputs to market approaches in the real estate space, when that transaction market freezes, you may not be able to place the same level of reliance on a sales comparable analysis. And you may need to change your probability weighting or change your weighting more towards an income approach or a discounted cash flow approach that's still within your policy, but you may need to think about the inputs to your value slightly different and making sure that that those um, at the end of the day produce an answer that you're comfortable with. I think one of the things that a lot of our clients are using as a sanity check is, did your value go up? And if your value went up, and everybody needs to take, you know, take a step back and think about, is that appropriate? Now, in the real estate space, you may have signed an enormous lease on one of your properties in February. And so you have a rationale for saying, well, I have a significant increase in the cash flow profile of my asset. Therefore, value goes up and that's OK. And so that brings me to the, what I believe is one of the most important points of governance, which is, which is documentation. And so as the preparer and the reviewer, are you producing the documentation that is robust enough, transparent enough 
to give leadership, to give the control and the accounting function, the detail they need, and, and specifically the CFO who's signing off on these financial statements in which these valuations going into the level of comfort to be able to approve, you know, whether it's a 5% increase in value or a 30% decline in value. Is it transparent? And that requirement's always there. I just think, you know, governance is getting even more of a spotlight now. Um, and it always has gotten that in disruption because you don't have those observable data points. And you may need to think about things like inputs slightly differently. But the core of your policies and the people and the models should still be relied upon. That's consistent with what we heard, which is if you're going to fundamentally change what you're doing, it probably should be because you don't have access to some data that you need for your process, which is very different than changing what you're doing because you have access to the information, but you've chosen to go a different route. Right. And and certainly if you don't have information, that's one thing. But I think in general, we, we're, we're seeing um, uh, others you know, follow their process with the appropriate level of scrutiny, with the you know, probably additional involvement from leadership looking at the inputs, looking at the outputs, and, and, and really making sure that it all makes sense. I think those are excellent points. And I think in particular, if I, I'm talking to clients and, and companies out there, with the disruption, not only for the markets, but the workforce, I think in some cases, it's sort of harder than ever to stick to your normal process. But to the point you guys made, it's probably more important than ever to make sure you're doing that, as you said, with the right level of oversight. But then one follow-up question I have, and, and you guys touched on this a little, but you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be people in the controllers department, which are reading the newspapers, they're seeing the bad news, and you know, they understand potentially the impact on the business, but then how that translates into the different valuations, other than sort of the common sense questions of, should this be going up, or has this gone down a reasonable amount? What other types of questions would you recommend someone in that role should be asking right now? Yeah, so I think one of the debates, particularly across diversified asset managers, is does the relative value of your portfolios make sense? What, what we think is most important in this environment for our clients is to make sure that there is a, a, a macro level view of what is the base case expectation as a business, not as an asset class, but as a business that you are applying to your portfolio. So is this a three month severe disruption followed by a plateau and then a subsequent recovery? Are you in the camp of a V-shaped recovery? Are you in the camp of a U-shaped recovery? And making sure from uh, from a leadership standpoint that that macro level view of, of how the coronavirus is impacted a portfolio gets applied consistently. Now, recognizing that that's going to be a very different outcome for a hospitality asset compared to a multifamily workforce housing asset that, you know, may have Section 8 support from the government and it may not matter as much. But at the very at the very least, your your base case is getting applied to the portfolio and it, it's removing the judgment from the portfolio managers that are applying it. And then similarly, the third party valuation agents that are getting employed, that it's very clear that their view of the market is fully vetted and can be aligned with what your point of view is, just because just because you have an external valuation on some parts of your portfolio and an internal valuation, you shouldn't get different answers because of that. At the end of the day, it's our client's value and, and, and there needs to be the diligence done over the, the processes there. I don't know, Chris, is that consistent kind of with what you're seeing? Yeah, look, I, I'd be asking... Have we followed our process? 
Were there any material changes to the process? If so, why? Who reviewed it? And, and then I'd also be thinking through you know, some high-level analysis about industries and sectors and, and really the distribution or the stratification of the portfolio and, and looking at the results to make sure they, can, they directionally make sense given the higher level trends in the market. You know, I'd also be asking about things like, uh, do we have access to all the information we need? I think another key question is just, did, did we follow, do we have all the checks and balances that we normally have? We know that that's been a challenge just to get a hold of people, particularly in an environment where things like price challenges have gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. So it was hard enough before, and now you got a lot more of it. So those are some of the questions I'd be asking from a process perspective. Yeah. And Chris, you touched on this a little, the process and sort of operational aspect of it. And I think if there's one clear takeaway from this discussion is that we can't really expect June 30th back to the way things were. And so now with more than two weeks to prepare, but now a, you know, a couple months to prepare for some difficult questions at June 30th, what are some of the things people should focus on from either an operational perspective or other perspective that could make things a little easier when you get to the, the next uh, reporting deadline? I'd focus on one, making sure you have all the information you need. Two, making sure that you consistently document what you're doing, consistently vet what you're doing, and consistently uh, get input from you know, all the stakeholders on your team. It, right? There could be accounting considerations, tax considerations for these, you know, for these companies. There could be, there's a new government program that seems to be coming out every day or every other day. You know, some of these companies or, or investments might be impacted by those. So it's you know, kind of think about it as keeping a pulse on the market, keeping a pulse on your investment, keeping a pulse on what's happening, uh, you know, across your own organization, you know, also to ensure consistency that so that if you have multi strategies or if you have different investments, you're thinking about the market in, in a similar way. And I, and I guess the last point, which is ultimately this comes down to telling a story for all these investments, there's a range of, of reasonable values and probably in times of disruption, that range is even wider. And yet for financial reporting, you got to book a number. So really, this process is about how do you tell the story that went from this range down to whatever you put in your financial statements or your your reporting. And I think that's where having a robust process and having a consistent process um, helps, particularly in these times of challenge. Yes. And good disclosure, too, is going to be critically important <laughs> Good disclosure, uh, with, absolutely. with what you're talking about. So, um, well, guys, great insight. Maybe before we wrap things up, I'll ask each of you for any final thoughts. So I'll start with you, Chris Bailey. As we've mentioned a couple of times here at the end, there's a lot of information out there. It's really hard to distill. Um, I think we all kind of had a hall pass at 331 because everything was really quick and there were a lot of topside haircuts. There were a lot of there were a lot of items that we all did our best guesswork around and our clients were doing the same. I think as we calibrate towards 630, I don't know that any of us are going to have that excuse again. And so I think the the research function of everything that goes into um, valuation is really important to start right now. To Chris's point, having the controls around where you're getting your information, making sure it's consistent across the organization um, is probably as important as it is now as it ever has been and making sure that you have the right framework particularly in the work from home environment to be able to make sure that that's, that's understood across the organization. Yeah. And I think before I turn to you, Chris Merchant, I think critical point there is something we already talked about, which is that the documentation, you know, if you are trying to do the best you can with the information you have, making sure you have that right documentation trail is going to be especially important um, in this, in this environment. So then Chris Merchant, how about turning to you? 
I'll keep it simple. When you're looking at valuation, at the end of the day, you want the value to reflect the market conditions today based upon what's happened with your investment, what's happened with the market, and what's happened between the in the relationship between those two things. And so, you know, whenever your last reporting date was, you know, there's been a lot of change. And so, obviously, a lot, this is all subject to a significant amount of judgment. But I think if people keep that principle in mind around, did I reflect the changes in the market? Did I reflect the changes in my company? And did I reflect you know, what a market participant thinks about all those items and the relationship between those two? Um, it'll serve as a good guidepost you know, going forward. Yeah. Well, good. Both of you, thank you so much. Great points and um, sort of be very helpful for our audience and look forward to chatting with you again closer to June 30th. So thanks again. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. That does it for today. I hope you found our COVID-related podcast library helpful during these uncertain times. As we wind down this COVID-dedicated series, please reach out if there are any topics we didn't cover or any areas where you think more in-depth coverage would be helpful. You can find me at heather.horn at pwc.com. And I look forward to hearing from you because your feedback is what keeps this show running. We'll be back next Tuesday with an episode on liquidity and I hope you'll tune in. So that you never miss any of our episodes, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.